Amen. Well, it's great to see you here this morning. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 33 to 34. Uh, As many of you know, we've been in a series in Romans chapter 6 through 8, and we're coming close to the end of that series. And uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 33 to 34, but I'll begin reading for us in verse 28. Verse 28. So if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 945, 945. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. This is God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word, and it is so very precious, and we pray now, Lord, that You would come by Your Spirit, that You would lead and guide us into all truth. Lord, we pray that that truth would strengthen and encourage us and transform us for Your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen. Well, several months ago, I was at a gathering of about 150 pastors, and among the individuals who addressed the group that was gathered together there was a man named Raymond Flanks. In the early 80s, in the city of New Orleans, Raymond Flanks was arrested, and he was arrested for a murder that had gone bad in a burglary. So he was charged with this murder and eventually convicted. The problem was that the conviction, with the conviction, was that the evidence in uh, Raymond Flank's favor was suppressed. So he was charged for this murder. Uh, He was convicted, but in the process of the trial, the evidence that was in his favor was suppressed. So he was falsely accused and convicted. For example, the woman who identified Flanks as the murderer originally described the murderer with very particular facial features, which obviously Flanks did not possess. In addition, the detective in the case had improperly suggested to the woman who observed the murder 
that Flanks was in fact the murderer before she made that determination. So as a result, Flanks spent 38 years, 10 months, and 25 days in prison for a murder that he never committed. During those years, Flanks worked tirelessly to appeal his conviction, and finally in May of 2022, his case was reviewed, and he was exonerated in November of 2022. When I heard him speak, he had only been a free man for about six months. I share Mr. Flank's story in order to illustrate that even the most carefully constructed and sophisticated legal systems in the world don't always get it right. Unfortunately, and sometimes tragically, they get it wrong, and justice is not served. However, in God's court, justice is always served. So Moses declares in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Now as we think about the justice of God, in one sense it's good news Because we live in a world that is characterized by sin and by wrongdoing, and we long, rightfully so, we long for justice. And at the same time, in a very real sense, it is bad news. Because before the court of God, we recognize that we are all guilty. We have all sinned against God and against His ways, and therefore we all deserve God's judgment. But last week we saw in verses 31 and 32 that Paul there insists that if we are in Christ, God is for us. And so here's the question that emerges. If we are sinners and we deserve God's judgment, how is it that God can be for us? How can the just judge of the universe be for us, we who are sinners and deserve His justice? My friends, in our text this morning, Paul assures us that it is at that very point, when we stand before the perfect judge of the universe, that we can be assured that God is altogether for us and He is not against us. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, quote, What is most terrifying to the soul under conviction is the justice, the righteousness, the holiness, the immutability, the truth of God. But the moment you become a believer, God's character and attributes become the greatest guarantee of your security. The greatest proof that you can never come under condemnation, end of quote. And we will see that glorious truth in our text this morning. Our passage contains two verses, verse 33 and 34, and you might have noticed each verse contains a question and an answer. And so we'll consider the first verse, verse 33, under the heading, accusations... 
and the Christian's assurance in the God who justifies. And then we'll consider the second verse under the heading, Condemnation and the Christian's assurance in Jesus who saves. So those are our two main points this morning. First point, accusations and the Christian's assurance in the God who justifies. Second point, condemnation and the Christian's assurance in Jesus who saves. So first of all, look there at verse 33. And notice that verse 33 begins with this question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. Now, of course, this is the language of a courtroom. This is the language of trial and defense. And you also notice here that the verb is in the future tense. Who shall or who will bring a charge against God's elect? And so it seems to indicate that Paul especially has in mind here the final day of judgment that will come, that is to come. The day on which all men will stand before God, stand before God's bench and give an account. Now remember in our passage last week in verses 31 and 32, Paul asked the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And of course, in asking that question, we pointed out that Paul is not suggesting that the Christian has no enemies or no adversaries. In fact, in the larger context of Romans chapter 8, Paul makes it clear that in this life, the Christian will face many enemies and many adversaries. Rather, Paul's point in that text is that no one or nothing can successfully be against God's people. No one and nothing can successfully, that is, thwart or deny God's purpose of salvation and redemption in the Christian's life. And we see a similar principle here in verse 33. Paul is not suggesting here in verse 33 that no one can or will bring a charge against God's people. Rather, the idea is that no one will be successful in bringing a charge against God's elect. Because in fact, in this life, the Christian faces many charges, many accusations, many accusers. Those accusers include, first and foremost, Satan. We see this illustrated in the life of Job. So in Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we see that Satan challenges God. Does Job fear God for no reason, Satan says to God? Stretch out your hand and touch all that Job has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan accused Job before God. Or in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, there we see that Satan is identified as the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before our God. So again, you see here that this is the image of a courtroom. God is the judge. Satan is the prosecuting attorney. Our rap sheet is long, and it's getting longer and longer, and Satan is accusing, he's charging, he's condemning before the courtroom of God. Not only does Satan accuse us, though, we learn in the Scriptures and we know by experience that our consciences accuse us. And John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, our conscience condemns us. 
We should recognize that our conscience is a gift from, the God, from God to alert us to what's morally right and wrong. And the Holy Spirit works through our conscience to convict us of sin. But we also need to understand that there is a difference between conviction and condemnation. The Holy Spirit convicts us in order to lead us to repentance and to obedience. And we should welcome and receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit that comes to us through God's Word and also through God's people. However, once we've repented of our sin and received God's forgiveness, Satan can still work through our conscience to continue to accuse and condemn us. We should also acknowledge that some of us, whether it's by nature or by our life experiences, we have a particularly sensitive conscience. It seems like our consciences are always accusing us, always condemning us, always finding fault. You may have a conscience that you might describe as overly scrupulous, relentlessly revisiting every thought, every attitude, every action. Your conscience seems to be on constant replay, examining every step with a fine-tuned comb in order to identify sinful motives or intents or missteps, whether real or imagined. In other words, it seems like you are always and forever on trial. And as a result, your life is characterized by a low-grade guilt or perhaps by a paralyzing guilt. Not only does Satan accuse us, not only does our consciences accuse us, but sometimes others accuse us. Perhaps we grew up in a home in which there was almost no words of encouragement or affirmation. Rather, it was constant critique and constant fault-finding and name-calling and verbal abuse. Or it may be a bully at school who seems to pounce on every mistake, point out every flaw, exploit every weakness as they ridicule and mock and belittle. Others may attack you because of your faithfulness to Christ and to the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It could be someone who's unwilling to forgive you. Or maybe they're willing to forgive you, but because of some real offense you have committed, they're having a terribly difficult time doing so. You know, it's often when it's most difficult for us to forgive one another that we come to more fully appreciate how extraordinary the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God truly is. So listen, my friends, just just giving a little bit of time of reflection here, we see that Paul is not suggesting that the Christian has no accusers. In fact, it's just the opposite. The Christian in this life will face many accusers and therefore many charges and many accusations. And then you add on top of that that we are sinners. 
And some of those charges are obviously legitimate and valid. Others imagined and false. So what is our hope in the face of both real sin for which we are guilty and imagined sin for which we are wrongly accused? Well, notice that part of the answer to that question is actually in the question itself. Notice in verse 33, who is charged? Look there in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That word there, elect, is actually the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, when he says, many are called, but few are chosen, few are elect. And Paul's use of this word reminds us of what he said in verses 29 and 30 when he laid out before us the golden chain of salvation. Do you remember that? How each act of salvation is like a link in a golden chain, linked indestructibly one to another. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, God is eternally committed to our redemption and salvation. He is eternally committed to the salvation and redemption of those whom he has chosen those whom He has elected to make His own. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones, listen to his reflections on this verse. He says, quote, I ask a question at this point. Do you habitually think of yourself as one of God's elect? One of God's chosen people? Many of our troubles arise from the fact that we do not think of ourselves in this way. If we learn to think of ourselves in these terms with the dignity and everything else that belongs to the position, it will revolutionize our Christian life and all our thinking. What unworthy views we often have of the Christian. A good man. One trying to live a good life. One who has taken his decision. All the emphasis is on men. But that is not the apostles' teaching. A Christian is one of God's elect. End of quote. So part of the answer to this question, how will we stand against the charges and accusations that we face in this life, is actually found in the question itself. We must know who we are. We are God's chosen people by the grace and mercy of God. But then notice the answer itself. Look at verse 33. The question, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Here's the answer. It is God who justifies. So in other words, Paul answers the question by reminding us again of who God is. God is the judge. God is the one who justifies. And God has already justified His people in Christ. That word that Paul uses there to justify means more than just to pardon or forgive sin. Of course, that's part of what is indicated here. That God pardons our sin. He forgives our sin. He removes it from us. But it's not just the negative act of removing our sin from us. To justify means to declare right, to declare just. So that before the God of the universe, we are not only absent of our sin and the guilt of our sin, having been forgiven, 
but we are declared positively just and righteous in Jesus. And listen, my friends, and this is what Paul is intending to convey to us. There is no higher court in the universe than the court of God. And there is no higher judge than God himself. I mentioned earlier that Raymond Flanks in the early 80s was found guilty in a court in New Orleans for a murder he did not commit. Do you know how he was eventually acquitted? His lawyers appealed to a ruling of the Supreme Court entitled Brady v. Maryland, which requires the disclosure of favorable evidence for the defense. See, they had suppressed that evidence that was in his favor. And so his lawyers appealed to this higher decision from the Supreme Court. And as a result of the decision of a higher court, the decision of the lower court was overturned. But my friends, we know that God's court is the highest of all courts, right? And he is the judge of all judges. In his court, there are no mistrials. There are no appeals. There are no decisions reviewed or overturned. God's verdict is forever final. And God has declared his people, his elect, justified. Therefore, my friends, rather, rather than doubt God's love for you, rather than doubt the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, rather than doubt the promise of salvation in the gospel, instead, doubt the lies of Satan. Doubt the false accusations of your conscience. Doubt the wrongful condemnation of others and trust and feel the freedom of God's judicial verdict on your behalf. Justified. Secondly, so that's the first point. Accusations and the Christian's assurance in the God who justifies. Secondly, let's look at verse 34. Condemnation and the Christian's assurance in Jesus who saves. Condemnation and the Christian's assurance in Jesus who saves. Look there at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. And notice the question here in verse 34. Who is to condemn? And the word that... Paul uses here for condemn means to pronounce a sentence after determination of guilt. So again, this is courtroom language. This is the language of trial and defense. And now, notice that in verse 34, Paul turns his attention from the Father to the Son. So Paul has already told us who the Father is. He is the one who justifies his elect. And now, Paul will tell us who the Son is. Notice what he says there in verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's noteworthy here that Paul's statement regarding the death of Jesus and this point is very brief and to the point. Paul doesn't feel here in verse 34 the need to elaborate because actually in his letter to the Romans up to this point, he has spent a significant amount of time unpacking the meaning and the purpose of Christ's death. Based on Paul's earlier statements regarding the death of Jesus, we learn that according to Romans 3, verse 25, Jesus put himself forth as a propitiation for our sins. That means he put himself forth as a sacrifice 
to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. According to Romans chapter 4, verse 25, we learn there that Christ yielded himself up to death for our trespasses. In Romans 5, verses 8 through 11, we learn that Christ Jesus demonstrated God's great love for us and that he died for us when we were still yet his enemies and in so doing reconciled us to God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 19, we learn that Christ Jesus obeyed the Father and embraced the death of the cross in order to secure our declaration of righteousness before God. So if, if we just look, quickly survey Paul's letter to the Romans up to this point, we learn that Christ willingly suffered humiliation and death in order to satisfy the wrath of God against us, in order to pay the penalty for our trespasses, in order to demonstrate God's great love for us, in order to reconcile us to God, in order to secure our justification in God's courtroom. And of course, the obvious question then is posed, will He now condemn us? He was condemned for us. Will the Lord Jesus now condemn us for the very sins for which He suffered and bled and died? Will Christ pay for all of our sins in full with His own life and then require that we pay for those very sins for which He gave His life, thereby nullifying His death and making a mockery of the cross? Of course, the answer is never. Christ Jesus is He who died. Therefore, Paul is saying, we can be assured that we will never be condemned. Paul goes on to declare that Christ is not only the one who died, but the one who is raised. Look there in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says in regards to his own life, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. But notice here in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, the emphasis is not on Jesus' authority over his own life and ability to raise himself up again from the dead. But rather, the emphasis here is on the Father raising Jesus to life. So the verb here is in the passive. It's not Jesus is the one who raised himself up, but rather, what Paul emphasizes here is that Jesus is the one who was raised. Now, now why is that significant? Why is it significant that Paul places an emphasis on the Father's action in raising up the Son? Well, because the resurrection served as the Father's validation of the Son's atoning work on the cross. We know that in Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus made many bold claims. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to have authority to forgive sins. He claimed to be equal with God. He claimed that His death would provide redemption for all of God's people. But what if Jesus was wrong? What if he was misguided? What if he was delusional? 
You see, my friends, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is God's divine stamp of approval on all of Jesus' claims, and in particular on his redemptive death and atoning work at the cross. Tim Keller says it this way, quote, The resurrection is a giant receipt stamped across history saying your debt has been paid for and you don't have to pay it ever again, end of quote. We could say that the resurrection is God's divine cosmic stamp of approval that reads, paid in full, atonement made, sacrifice accepted. Christ Jesus, Paul says, is the one who was raised from the dead by the Father. Therefore, we can be assured we will never be condemned. Notice Paul goes on to say that not only Christ died, not only was Christ raised, but Paul now points in verse 34 to Jesus' current status. Look there in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God. And here, of course, Paul is recognizing Jesus' current position of power and authority. After Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he ascended to the Father and he was exalted to the highest place of authority at the Father's right hand. And so Jesus, before he goes to the Father, speaks to his disciples. And as he gives them the Great Commission, he prefaces the Great Commission with these words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And of course, the apostles pick up on this. And so the apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23, He, that is God the Father, raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church. But you know, it's amazing to see that the Apostle Peter not only recognizes the exaltation of Jesus and His power and authority, but the Apostle Paul reveals how the Lord Jesus uses that power and authority. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Peter says, God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. In other words, as Christ has been raised to the right hand of the Father, and as He has been given all power and all authority, He exercises that power and authority for the purpose of securing our redemption and salvation. He is granting, from His position of power and authority, He is granting repentance and forgiveness to His people, securing their salvation. So what Paul says here in our text is that Christ is the one who condemns. Christ is the one who is able to issue the verdict of whether you are eternally damned or eternally saved. And Christ is the one who holds all power. He holds all authority. He's exalted to the right hand of God. And He uses that power and authority for your good and for your redemption. He uses His power and His authority for the sake of those whom He has purposed to save. 
And so listen, my friends, whenever someone comes before God to condemn and accuse God's people, not only must they contend with the reality of the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and His redemptive work on behalf of His people, but in addition, they must set themselves in opposition against the supreme rule and reign of the exalted Christ who exercises His power and authority on behalf of His redeemed people. In other words, Christ Jesus, in other words, the Apostle Paul is saying that Christ Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Therefore, we can be assured we will never be condemned. He will use his power and authority for our justification. Finally, Paul indicates that Jesus intercedes for us. Look there in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And here's the last descriptor. Who indeed is interceding for us. So we saw in verse 27 earlier in the chapter that the Spirit of God intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit intercedes on our behalf before the Father. But here in verse 34, we see the intercession of the Son And as the Son intercedes on our behalf, it's not as though He is adding to His redemptive work on the cross, but rather He sits at the right hand of God to represent and present His redemptive work at the cross to the Father. Did you notice as you look at these descriptions of the Lord Jesus, did you notice that the two descriptors of Jesus, the first two descriptors of Jesus refer to past events. In other words, they refer to the past work of Christ's redemption, His death and His resurrection. But the next two descriptors of Jesus refer to present activities. They refer to the present work of Christ's redemption. So that Christ is currently, presently, at this moment, seated at the right hand of God, possesses all authority and power and exercises it on behalf of His people. And currently, presently, at this moment, Christ intercedes on our behalf as a reminder of His accomplished work of salvation. Speaking of Christ's ongoing intercessory work, the New Testament theologian John Murray writes, quote, Nothing serves to verify the intimacy and constancy of the Redeemer's preoccupation with the security of His people, end of quote. Isn't that beautiful? The the idea here is the Lord Jesus continually, consistently is concerned and preoccupied with our salvation and redemption. In other words, Christ did not pay for our debt. Christ did not pay for our sins and then leave us to fend for ourselves. Rather, Jesus is present even now to defend and to protect and to advocate for us against anyone who would condemn us for old offenses or demand that we pay old debts. Paul says Christ is the one who intercedes for us before the Father, and therefore we can be assured we shall not be condemned. Charles Spurgeon 
summarizes this passage well. He imagines Paul being asked how he deals with the accusations of Satan. And Spurgeon provides Paul's answer. So someone asked the Apostle Paul, Why, Paul, Satan will bring thundering accusations against you. Are you afraid? No, says Paul. I can stop his mouth with this cry. It is Christ that died. That will make him tremble. For he crushed the serpent's head in that victorious hour. And I can shut his mouth again, yea, rather, that is risen again, for he took him captive on that day. And I will add, who sits at the right hand of God, I can foil him with that, for he sits there to judge him and to condemn him forever. Once more, I will appeal to his advocacy, who makes intercession for us. I can stop his accusation with the perpetual care of Jesus for his people. End of quote. Christ continues to care for us. He perpetually cares for His people as He sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us, securing our redemption. So when we face the charges of our real sin and guilt, or when we are faced with accusations that are false or imagined, how will we stand? What will we do? As we conclude, let me just give you three brief points of application. Three brief points of application. First, know yourself. Know yourself. You know, it is remarkable as you look at Paul's letter to the Romans, it's remarkable that in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul spends a lot of ink trying to convince people who think they are righteous in and of themselves that they are not, and that they deserve God's judgment. That's the first three chapters of Romans. Then Paul spends even more ink in chapters 4 through 8, trying to persuade those who know they are sinners that they are, in fact, justified before God and completely forgiven. Paul wants us to know and experience this reality. And if we are to know and experience this reality and the freedom of God's salvation and redemption, we must know who we are in Christ. What have we learned already in Romans chapter 6 through 8 about who we are in Christ? I mean, there's so much to be said, I can't say it all, but just a few things to mention. We are united with Christ by faith. We are dead to sin and alive to God. We are slaves to God. We belong to Jesus. By the work that God has done in our hearts, we now delight in the law of God in our inner being. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in the Spirit, and the Spirit dwells in us. We are sons of God. We possess the hope of eternal redemption. We are foreknown. We are predestined. We are called. We are justified. We will be glorified. God is for us. And as we see in our text this morning, we are the elect, the chosen people of God. Paul wants us to know, I mean, can we get it? Like our hearts are so hard to this and resistant to believe the glory of the promises of the gospel. And Paul's just laying it on thick over and over and over again. Do you know who you are in Christ? In fact, we know that Paul wants us to 
understand and experience this freedom because he begins chapter 8 with the pronouncement of no condemnation. Look at Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus and he ends the chapter with no condemnation. God is the God who justifies you and Christ Jesus will not allow any condemnation to stand against you for he died for you. He rose for you. He sits at the right hand to intercede for you. First, we must know who we are in Christ. Second, we must know God and Christ. We must know God and Christ. It is noteworthy that verses 33 and 34, there are two questions, and both of those questions are personal in nature. Do you see that in the text? Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Now notice this, as these questions, these personal questions are raised, Paul does not respond with a what. So they are who questions, Paul does not respond with a what. Paul doesn't say, no one will bring a charge against you because you've been called, you've been justified, you've been reconciled. See, that would be responding with a what. This is what has happened to you. And Paul talks that way in other places, and that's a good and appropriate way to talk. But that's not Paul's emphasis here. The question is a personal question, who? And Paul gives a personal answer. The personal answer is, you not only need to know what God has done for you, you need to know who God is. You need to know who Christ is. And God is the God who has declared you justified. And Christ is your Savior who has redeemed you by His death and by His resurrected life. Therefore, my friends, don't try to overcome your real sins or your false guilt in your own strength. Rather, what Paul is admonishing us to do is look to God and look to Christ in faith. Know who they are. God is the God who justifies you. Christ is the one who gave his life for your redemption. Know who they are and look to them in faith. As it has been observed, every time we look to ourselves, we should look ten times to Christ. Third and finally, resist the devil. Resist the devil. James says in James chapter 4, verse 7, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, I already noted that both of these questions in verse 33 and verse 34 are personal in nature. Right? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? And who is to condemn? And by the very fact that these questions are personal in nature, it points to the fact that Paul seems to be thinking here primarily of Satan, of the one who is the accuser of the brethren. He primarily seems to be thinking here of the day of judgment where we will stand before the bench of God and Satan is there to accuse and to charge. And so how will we, weak, sinful, often guilty people, withstand the accusations of the evil one? Listen to these final words of counsel from John Piper. He writes, quote, 
Listen carefully, you who are oppressed by the devil, or someday maybe, that is everyone. Get blunt and courageous and tough with the devil. Get in Satan's face and state your case with authority. Tell him, Christ died for me. Christ was raised from the dead for me. And Christ is at the all-seeing, all-powerful, all-ruling right hand of God for me. And Christ is interceding for me with Almighty God. Be gone, little, created, dependent, ruled devil. And hear this, little devil. If you kill me, which all God, Almighty God may let you do, in that moment my soul is freed. I win. Your misery is multiplied, you lose, and thousands follow behind me blessed with my blood. End of quote. In other words, if God is for us, who can be against us? Not even Satan himself, with all his charges and all his accusations. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we have heard from your word that the promises of your gospel and the security and hope that you give us in Jesus Christ would land on our minds and hearts afresh. And Lord, we confess that we are oftentimes so full of fear and anxiety and doubt that we fail to experience and enjoy the freedom that you have purchased for us in the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that you would dispel, that you would remove those doubts and anxieties and fears. And Lord, I pray that even as Paul glories in your grace and mercy and salvation and the security of your redemption in Romans chapter 8, I pray that we would know that joy, that freedom, that security. That we would not only rejoice in it in these moments, but we would walk in it moment by moment, day by day. And we would know a fresh boldness and joy and power as a result. So come now, Lord, and take your word, and we pray that you would apply it to our hearts. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.